Good morning. I think I might need a little bit more volume. What do you think? Are we good there? I'll just yell. Thank you, Pastor Sal, for that group of announcements. There's quite a lot going on here this month, and I'm losing track of stuff, you know. But you know what's great? We have an opportunity to serve. When you serve others, you're finding out who you really are. You know, when you serve someone else and you confront your own selfishness, your own convenience, your own comfort, you learn very quickly that by nature, and I mean sin nature, not redeemed nature, we are very selfish people, very selfish creatures. When you give, when you serve, you have an opportunity to cultivate Christ's nature in you. You have an opportunity to to do the thing that your human nature or sinful nature would never do. Love someone else. We're going to see in today's study that there was a church named Sardis. And they were a dead church. And they were dead because they stopped doing the things that Christ had called them to do. It's interesting because there was a church named Ephesus, which we studied a few weeks ago, which was doing all of the right things, but had forgotten why they were doing it. This church is a little different. And this morning we'll be studying in Revelation chapter 3 and in verse 1, Jesus' letter to the church in Sardis. Let's open in prayer. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you because you have given us your word. You have given us everything we need to live godly in you. We have the power of your spirit. We have your word. We have the example of Jesus and others in the scriptures. And we have one another to encourage one another and opportunities to minister to those in need. We really don't have any excuse to do anything but get outside of ourselves and think of others more highly than ourselves. And so, Lord, we don't want to be described as dead spiritually. We want to be described as alive, filled with your spirit, ministering to others and experiencing the power of your spirit in and through our lives. So as we approach your word today, may you transform our wicked hearts, for our hearts are deceitfully wicked, desperately wicked, above all things. We can't know them, but you do know them, and you transform them into the image of Christ. We ask that you do that work today in Jesus' name. Amen. The church in Sardis, let's read the letter. It's a brief letter. Chapter 3 in the book of Revelation, in verse 1. To the angel or the messenger of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits, or better translated, the sevenfold spirit of God. The sevenfold spirit of God. And the seven stars. And I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, and obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy." He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, in this letter, we see some of the symbols which we've already talked about, 
and have seen explained to us, especially in chapter 1. Uh, we see some other things that are familiar language that Jesus used in the gospel, such as a thief coming in the night, uh, idioms, language that, that is particular to this church for a reason, but also language we've heard before, things we're familiar with. As we get into this study today, I want to tell you a little bit about the church in Sardis, the city of Sardis. It was probably, not the city, the church, was probably founded, like the other seven churches, by Ephesian missionaries shortly after 51 AD. Now, this city was built on a mountain slope, and it was protected by a river, and it was considered impregnable, that is, unconquerable. It was considered safe in a way that they never thought anyone could take the city because of the mountain slope and the river. It was well protected. However, however, the city was conquered a number of times because they failed to watch. They failed to watch. They failed to to look. They, They took it for granted that they were safe. And in failing to watch, their city was conquered, even though it was really an unconquerable city. The city had also recently been destroyed by an earthquake and rebuilt, but it hadn't been rebuilt to its former glory. So the city itself had sort of died. It wasn't what it once was. The city was rich with gold and silver, but but they often contended with thieves that hid in the mountains. So when you know that about the city, you begin to understand the language that Jesus employs when he's speaking with this church, when he writes this letter, so much of what he speaks about they were familiar with. And it explains why, when he writes his letter to Sardis, he uses the language that he does. Now, this is interesting as well, because one thing comes out loud and clear in this section. It's the idea that there was a remnant within the church in Sardis, that most of them were dead, but there was this remnant, that is, a small group of people that were still considered worthy. What's interesting to me, and I think is no mistake and no coincidence, is that in Greek, the word Sardis means remnant. It means remnant. And as Jesus approaches his church, look at the first part of verse 1. He says, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits, or the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. Let's talk a little bit about that, because we've talked about this before, and we'll talk about it again. There are not seven spirits before God's throne. There is the Holy Spirit. And that is the sevenfold working of God's Holy Spirit. So when we see that, it's not seven spirits as seven independent spirits. It's one Holy Spirit who's described as working in seven different ways in the scriptures. Now, of course, the Holy Spirit is one, and he's also one with the Father and the Son. But in Isaiah, and uh, I've mentioned this before, I actually don't even have a bookmark here, so we'll see if I can find it quickly. In Isaiah, and in chapter 11, and in verses 1 through 2, this is what Isaiah says. He's speaking of Christ, he's speaking of the Messiah who would come, and he says, a shoot, in verse 1 of chapter 11 in Isaiah, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. That was David's father's name. And from his roots... A branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, counsel and power, the spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And so you have that sevenfold description 
The spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, power, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord, all describing the Holy Spirit in seven different ways. And for that and other reasons, it's not hard to understand, as we see the sevenfold spirit throughout the book of Revelation, it's not hard to understand that it's, it's, it's simply a, a description, an accurate description of the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives and through our lives and in the world. So what is Jesus saying? Back to our scripture today, back to our text. These are the words, we know they're Jesus' words, of him who holds the sevenfold spirit. Now, is it any wonder that he would be described in this way? You remember at the baptism of Christ in Matthew's gospel in chapter 3, right? You remember that the Holy Spirit came down like a dove, not a dove, but like a dove, and settled on Jesus as the Son of Man, as the Son of God, but as the Messiah and the Savior. As the Son of God, he was always one with the Spirit. But as the Son of Man, at this point, he experienced what we experience or can experience, the anointing of God's Holy Spirit. As a man, he was already one with the Spirit as God. But as a man, he experiences this anointing. So the description that he holds the sevenfold Spirit is simply saying, He is one with the Holy Spirit, but he's also not just one with the Spirit, but working powerfully through the power of God's Holy Spirit. And so, first thing we recognize is that Jesus approaches this dead church by saying, I have the Holy Spirit. I think there's not even a subtle message there. I think it's a very clear message. A dead church is dead because it doesn't have life, right? And the life is in the Spirit, So when we encounter a church like the church of Sardis that goes to sleep, such that thieves sneak in, when it goes to sleep and it it really just can be described as a dead church with a reputation of being alive but dead, what's lacking? Do, Do you know this, that in Hebrew the word for spirit is ruach? It means breath. When God breathed, breath into Adam, he became a living soul. The Ruach Elohim was breathed into this man who was not alive yet, and then he became alive. The Spirit brings life. So he speaks to a dead church, and what does he say, or how does he approach them? He approaches them in the power of the Holy Spirit. I wish, I wish that as a Christian, as a disciple, as a pastor, that when I spend time with other Christians, and specifically other pastors working in churches that are struggling, and I I do that from time to time, I wish that I could somehow convince those who are struggling in ministry that the difference is the Holy Spirit. You say it, and I think it just goes in one ear and out the other, and I think it's sort of like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But they don't take time to realize the Holy Spirit. You have to be alive to breathe, right? If you're laying on the ground, God forbid, and a doctor comes over and sees you're not breathing, chances are you're not alive. And if someone resuscitates you by breathing life into you, you may survive. And isn't that wonderful? But when you spiritualize that and you realize you you go into a church, you work with a ministry and you try to help them to understand, you need life in this church. Well, well, you know, things, we need life. Where do we get that life? Well, we have this program. No, 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 no. Life doesn't come from a program. Well, well, we have this book. No, no, life doesn't come from a book. Well, we, we have a consultant. Life doesn't come from consultants. 
Oh, I have education. Education doesn't bring life. The Spirit brings life. Oh, does that mean that we have to, like, be crazy and bounce off the walls and, like, the Blues Brothers? Flipping down the aisle? No, life is the Holy Spirit having reign over your hearts and your church. You're submitted to the Holy Spirit. You can't be dead when you're filled with the Spirit. So that's the first thing we see as Jesus approaches this church. But there's something else we see. It says that he also holds the seven stars. Now, if you've been with us, we've talked about this before. The seven stars, according to chapter 1, verse 20, the word of God tells us that the seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches. So what does that mean? The messengers, well, more than likely the leaders, the pastors, not angels like the kind of angels we talk about in heaven, which are talked about in this chapter as well. But messengers, the word is the same in the Greek. It's the one bringing the message to the church. The messengers, or ones, plural, bringing the messages to the churches. And so, isn't it interesting that when Jesus approaches a church, it's described as being dead, that he mentions two things in particular. The Holy Spirit and Spirit-filled messengers. Now, I am not a consultant. Okay? I don't have all those letters after my name. But I can tell you if a church is dead, it's for two reasons. They don't have the Spirit, or they're not submitted to the Spirit, and they don't have anointed messengers bringing the Word of God in the power of the Spirit. Period. End of sentence. Check, please. It's so important that you understand that, that we understand that, because there are so many good people in dying churches, even in our area, trying to figure out why there's no pulse. Why there's no sign of life. Why? And they can't figure it out. And yet it really is simple. You bring the word of God in the power of the spirit, And you allow the spirit to rule and reign in the church. Well, we might have to change our bylaws. Yeah, you might. It breaks my heart. I take no joy in saying this, that I've seen far too many dying churches in our area dying simply because this is the reason. Well, let's move on. Jesus approaches the church in this way. And he corrects the church. And it's okay to correct people, you know, lovingly correct someone, show them what's wrong. Can you imagine if you went to the doctor and the doctor said, well, got some stuff wrong with you. And you said, well, doctor, what's going on? I have the results of your test. Yeah, well, tell me what's going on. I really don't want to disappoint you or ruin your day. Go on with your life. Don't worry about it. I think you'd be upset. I think you might not make your copay. So... Correction is a good thing. What are the results of the test? Well, you have this problem. Oh, now I can address it. But if you walk out of the office, I don't know what he's talking about. I'm fine. I feel great. Probably not going to correct the problem, if there is a problem. You see, this church, as we see, had a reputation for being something they were not. There's a lot of people that are more concerned about what others think of them than who they are. You ever notice that? They're good if everybody thinks they're good. Meanwhile, they're not good. They're not doing well at all. Look what it says. It says here, I know your deeds. That is, I know what you do. I know the things you do. And you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Now, we live in a culture that is fascinated with zombies. Not sure exactly why. I myself will admit to having seen a few programs about zombies. 
But here's the thing. Zombies are a metaphor for a mindless culture that just sort of does what everyone else is doing. And I think that's why it resonates with us in today's culture. You're watching a zombie movie, and I don't think anyone actually believes zombies are a real thing. And yet, I saw some cities burned down over the last few years by people I could only describe as zombies. I've seen people follow the crowd mindlessly doing things that are wrong, almost as if they don't have a brain, almost as if they weren't really alive. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, it's really easy to get into this sort of spiritual zombieism. It's like all of a sudden you're just doing what everybody else is doing and you're not really thinking about it. You're not really thinking about how ridiculous it is or how detrimental it might be. These people, they had a reputation for being something they weren't. They kind of looked alive, but they really weren't, spiritually speaking. They were not. They had actually fallen asleep in the light. Does that ever happen? I'm one of those people when the light comes in the window in the morning, it wakes me up. But there are times where, you know, I'm so tired, I lay on the couch after I've been, you know, training or something, and the TV's on, the lights are on, and I'm dead asleep. You have to be pretty tired to fall asleep in the light. They were pretty dead because they fell asleep in the light. They needed to wake from their sleep and strengthen their relationship with God. Look what it said there. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of God. They needed to wake up. Now, of course, they weren't actually dead, but spiritually they were. And so he uses that term, wake up like you're asleep. And I think that's probably a better way of saying it. A lot of churches are asleep. It's not so much that they're actually dead, but spiritually dead is kind of like you're asleep. You don't really realize what's going on around you when you're asleep. And that could easily describe many within the churches today. It certainly described the church in the first century in Sardis. They needed to wake up. And their outward works, their deeds were like all that remained. They they weren't even sufficient. They just had a reputation of being something, but they really weren't whatever it was that people thought they were. I hope that doesn't describe anyone this morning. That everyone thinks you're doing fine and well, and everyone thinks you're super spiritual, but the reality is you're not. You're kind of a phony. You're kind of a fake, an imposter, because really the truth is you're spiritually asleep, if not spiritually dead. I would hate to think that that describes any of us, but if we're going to be honest, there's been times in our lives where we haven't really been where we're supposed to be, maybe even this week. But you know what's great? When you wake up, and you start to apply God's word to your life, and you really do wake up and you, you ask God to fill you with the Spirit. It's not that you're suddenly perfect, but you look in the mirror and you say, you know what, I know who I am, I know who I'm not. But you know what? I'm not asleep. I'm not spiritually dead. I'm awake. I'm alive in Christ. I hope we all find ourselves there, because there are times where we feel a little out of it. We don't need to stay there. Well, anyway, back to this church. There's a word, lethargy. It kind of means you're, you're kind of listless. You're kind of a lazy person. You're not really doing much. And they needed to repent of this lethargy. They had received God's word, but they now needed to obey it. Look at verse 3. Remember. Now, that means that they once knew. Remember, therefore, what you have received 
They had received God's word and heard. They had heard God's word. But notice, obey it and repent. So they weren't obeying it and they needed to stop disobeying God's word and obey it. Pretty simple diagnosis. You're feeling dead? You need to do this. You need to remember what it was to be alive. Obey God's word. Stop whatever it is you're doing or start doing the things you haven't been doing. And this is an encouragement to this first century church to wake up. They needed to wake up, faithfully watch over their fellowship, not just go to sleep. Some people just sort of phone it in. And with Zoom services, they're literally phoning it in. Have you gotten the impression that maybe I'm not a big fan of that? I mean, they're literally phoning it. You're literally phoning it in. And here's what I have to say about this. If you want a spiritually dead existence, stay away from church. Physically, stay away from church. You'll be dead very quickly. You know, if you don't eat for over 40 days, you're probably not going to make it. You don't drink water between three to six days, you're probably going to drop dead. You don't breathe for three or four minutes, you're probably not going to be alive. But if you stay away from the Spirit of God, you will almost die instantaneously spiritually. We don't want that to be the case. Not in our church and not in our hearts. They needed to prepare for the Lord's imminent return. The Lord is telling them, I'm coming back. Look at verse 3. Flatter part. But if you do not wake up, so that would be someone that says, no, five more minutes, five more minutes. Beep, 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 beep. Beep, 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 beep. We all know what that feels like, right? That's how I felt this morning. Wake up. Get up. Well, if that's the case, then you'll experience God's best. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, he says. This is Jesus. He said these things before. And you will not know at what time I will come to you. Clearly, if you compare that to the Gospels, is a reference to his coming again. At a time when the church would not even be prepared or know what was about to happen. I think we understand that. That's an analogy we're not only familiar with, but even if you're not, makes a lot of sense. So, they needed to be prepared because the Lord can return at any time. There are lots of churches that I wonder if the Lord returned, if they'd even notice. And that's sad. Well, this church, Sardis, they were one of only two of the seven churches that received no commendation. That is, there's, there's comfort, there's correction, but there's no commendation. There are two churches that receive no correction, just commendation. But these are two, one of the two churches, Sardis, that received no, no real encouragement that what they were doing was good. After all, they were dead. But Jesus does comfort this church, and it's important to know that, that even when there's nothing good to say, the Holy Spirit is the comforter. He wants to bring comfort. He wants to change the situation. Even if, even if there's correction and nothing good to say, no commendation, Jesus doesn't walk away and say, it's hopeless. I, I want nothing to do with you. He says, I want to comfort you. I want to fill you with the Spirit. I want to wake you up. I want to bring you back to life. Look at verse 4. Yet. Now remember I told you what Sardis means, right? Remnant. Remnant, we understand that word. It's like a few people that are still faithful, a remnant. Verse 4, yet you have a few people in remnant who have not soiled their clothes. That makes sense. It's a play on words. It's intentional. 
They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The remnant's worthy. Why is the remnant worthy? Well, they were faithful. There was a faithful remnant within this church, and they're encouraged to continue in holiness. In many, many churches that can be described as dead spiritually or asleep in the light, there are those who are not. And the Lord would encourage them to encourage others and to remain faithful. Notice they're worthy. See, we got to get out of this way of thinking like you look at a church, they've got all these problems, and therefore you, 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 with a broad brush like we talked about last week, you paint everybody in one light. You say, well, they're all dead. Probably not. There's almost always a remnant even in the deadest of dead churches. Many times it's one or two people that are keeping the whole thing going through prayer. So don't rule out the fact that there might still be a pulse. And what does Jesus do? He comforts them. He encourages them. He tells them they're going to be clothed in white. Now, what does that mean? I think we understand that analogy. It means to be made holy and righteous in Jesus Christ, right? We understand that. And they are walking in the righteousness of Christ. And that's why they're worthy. Not because they've done anything to make themselves worthy. They're worthy because they're walking in Christ's righteousness. And they do that now and they will for all eternity according to what we read. And then we read in verses 5 and 6, He who overcomes will like them be dressed in white. And this is addressed to anyone at any time at this point, including others in the church. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the encouragement here is to be clothed in white. That is to be made holy and righteous in Jesus Christ. To look to Christ for your righteousness. To cultivate a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is how you overcome a dead situation spiritually. Through Jesus Christ. He's always the reward. He's always the answer. And he's always the power with which we can conquer these sins and problems in our lives. There is security in salvation. You need to know that. Without the threat of repeal. And I think it's important to mention this because look what he says to these people. They're in a dead church and there's just a few of them. But he tells them they're worthy and they're going to be blessed. But he also tells them this. I will never. Now, I want you to recognize that the word never means never. You don't need to look it up in Greek. I think you figured that out already, right? It means what? Never. I will never blot out his name from the book of life. Never. That sounds pretty secure to me. Now, there are some who would suggest that, you know, you can be saved and unsaved, and there's others that suggest, well, if you're saved and you act like you're not, you never were saved. Here's the important thing to know. If Christ writes you in the Lamb's book of life, one thing about his pencil, it doesn't have an eraser. See, I need an eraser on my mechanical pencil because I make mistakes, and God does not. So if he writes your name in the Lamb's book of life, which we'll talk more about in our studies in this book, and is mentioned throughout Scripture, if God writes your name in this book, which is really a symbol or an analogy for you belonging to him, what makes you think that you could ever reach a place, even if you were spiritually dead, where God would just write you off? That's the way we think. We reach a place where we're done with people. I'm done with her. I'm done with him. Aren't you glad that God never reaches that place? 
It's important to recognize that truth. To understand that there is security in true salvation in Jesus Christ. Without this threat of, you know, you hold it over people's head. You know? Oh, you're saved, yeah, but I might take it away if you keep this up. Please don't say things like that to your kids. Sometimes we, <laughs> we have to draw boundaries with people, even children. But it's probably never a good idea to preach what I like to call the Santa Claus gospel. Which is, you know, you better not pout, you better not cry, you better not shout. I'm telling you why. Jesus Christ is coming to town. And if you are not who you're supposed to be, you're going to get coal in your stocking. We grow up with this way of thinking. And it's a rewards-based thinking. But his reward is with him. His reward is him. And if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, what makes you think he would be so sadistic as to take himself away from you? Anyone that comes to me will in no way be cast out, Jesus says. Do you believe what he says? Or you always constantly doubt and you think, well, you know, I know God's done with me this week. I'd be done with me. Yeah, but you're not God. So as we consider this church, there were those within this dead church that were totally saved. Totally, completely saved. They didn't need to worry about losing something. Unfortunately, the church as a whole was not as fortunate. Most within this church were not there. They were spiritually dead, but there was a remnant in Sardis, a Sardis in Sardis, that was truly overcoming because they were worthy in Christ. Now, when we talk about a reward, and we see this in every one of the letters to the churches, Jesus is that white clothing. We've mentioned that already. He is the reward, whether it's the manna from heaven, whatever it is that we see in each of the letters, Jesus is the reward. He's the white clothing that secures our eternal destiny. You understand that? That's Christ's righteousness, big fancy Scrabble word, imputed, that is given to you without merit, just imputed to you, given to you, Christ's righteousness given to you because of his love for you. Dressed in white. And it's not to be compared with our own righteousness because what did Isaiah say about our righteousness? It was as filthy rags. So, The first century church of Sardis, or remnant, had a remnant, but they were on life support as a church. Now, this speaks of a time in church history, just like all of the letters do. And it picks up where the church of Thyatira left off with the Roman church. And it's funny because I often will say to people, when I study through the the letters, I'll say, listen, when we get to the letter to the church of Thyatira, you're going to think that I'm going after Catholics. But give me another week so I can go after the Protestants too. That's supposed to be a joke. There is definitely an opportunity to look within each of these church movements and find things that needed correction or need correction. Now that was last week. Let's move forward. This is the Reformed Church. This speaks of the Reformed Church. I'm not talking about maybe a Reformed Church you've attended or attend. I'm talking about the movement that started in the 1500s or thereabout. To, and, can, and really continues to the present time. And if you've seen the state of much of, not all of, much of the Reformed Church in America and throughout the world, it's a pretty accurate description. Now again, not all. 
Sardis means remnant. There is a remnant within this movement that love God. I'm not suggesting everyone who's a, who could describe themselves as being a part of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, that every one of those churches that came out of the Protestant Reformation, they don't all look like this. But I want to just share one little thing with you. Calvary Chapel didn't come out of the Catholic Church, although many Catholics attend Calvary Chapel. Calvary Chapel didn't come out of the Protestant movement either. We link our heritage back to the apostolic church, the first century church. The things we do and the way we teach and things we believe are more closely linked to that time in church history, which, I mean, unfortunately, I say this unfortunately, was really one of the best times in church history because it was closer to the truth. It was closer to Jesus' life and ministry, uh, the the pouring out of the Spirit and the Word of God being given. So when we look at our church and people say to you, well, what kind of church are you? Are you Catholic? No. Are you Protestant? No. What are we? Well, If anything, if you want to describe us at all, we're trying to go back to that apostolic age where there wasn't all of this nonsense that has so thoroughly corrupted the churches. That doesn't make us better. I'm just saying that that's our our viewpoint. So I don't consider myself a Protestant, and I don't consider myself a Catholic. Calvary Chapel is a non-denominational church. Okay, this Calvary, and we're affiliated loosely with other Calvary chapels. We all kind of believe the same thing. But we're not a denomination, so being non-denominational means that you don't have to join, you don't have to really make this your, your only way to go to church, but I don't want you to think of us as a Protestant church either. So here's what we know, because Protestant church, the Reform movement was very different in the things they believed than we believe. In fact, you may or may not know this, if you've been to the Pennsylvania Dutch country, there were Anabaptists, and there were those that were actually hunted down and killed by the Protestants. So what is it with us, even within the church? We're probably more closely linked to the Protestants who protested the Protestant movement than we are to the Protestant movement. But the Reformed Church, again, 1500s, you are familiar with the Reformers of, you know, Martin Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, those uh, good men, men who did a lot of good, accomplished a great deal, but not all that needed to be accomplished, clearly. One thing that happened during this time in church history, they, re- they received with joy the great liberating truth of the word of God. Remember, he says to the church of Sardis, remember what you've received and obey it. They received the word of God. They didn't always obey it. And I've already given you one example, but there are many examples where they didn't. In fact, one of the things that came out during the Protestant Reformation, which was clearly very good, was salvation by grace through faith. Can I hear an Amen. Salvation by grace through faith, not through the church or its sacraments. And that was a very positive thing. See, the truth had been kept from the church and the people in the church for a thousand years, a millennium. And it left many in bondage. They didn't have the word of God. It was generally kept in Latin or some other language that the people couldn't get access to. And shortly after the initial protest of the Protestant movement against the Roman church, these churches became formal and dead. Now, why was that? Well, their initial deeds were ultimately incomplete before God. Many of them protested against the Roman church, but that's about as far as they got. If you went to the church and you were a Catholic, it really wasn't all that different than what you had experienced. So they inherited a lot of the problems. They corrected some of the things that needed to be corrected, but it wasn't complete. And what does Jesus say to the church in Sardis? Your works are not complete. There was more that needed to be done, and because they didn't do the work, 
They remained formal and dead, ultimately. Again, not all churches that came out of the Reformation can be described in this way. Remember what Sardis means, remnant. But the majority of them ultimately did. Their initial deeds were ultimately incomplete. Their reputation far exceeded their actual spirituality. What do I mean? Do you know that most of the churches that came out of the Protestant Reformation ultimately were anti-Semitic? Did you know that? Have you read some of the writings of men like Martin Luther? I'm not saying they were terrible, terrible people. I'm not ready to start tearing down statues and breaking windows because they weren't perfect. That's just what we do to our founding fathers in this nation. But here's what I do know. I know that while they were imperfect, these men accomplished a lot of good, but there was a lot of things that really needed to continue to change. They got stuck in one place and never went further. Well, also another thing that is very true of this movement, the Reformed Church, and again, not a particular church and not all of them, but the spiritual leadership of the pastor was questioned during this church era. It was an overreaction to the Pope. So the churches came out of Romanism and they were like, well, we're not having that anymore. We're not having a bishop who rules like a king, so we're not going to have any bishops, we're just going to have elders, presbyters, if you will. That's where we get the name of the Presbyterian Church. Presbyters, elders. And so these churches were ruled by the leaders, the elders. Not a bad thing. But what were they lacking as a result? The stars that were in Christ's right hand. The spirit-filled leaders. So they went too far in the other direction because, okay, you had the Pope ruling as an emperor, right? And then they protest against that, and then they give the power over to others But here's the problem. Because the spiritual leadership of the pastor or the leader or the bishop was questioned during this church era, Protestant churches were run by each of the sovereign national states. Protestant churches became state churches. It's why the pilgrims and Puritans left Europe to come here. They didn't want to be part of a state church. You understand that? Maybe you know that. We're coming up on... Thanksgiving. They were thankful that they could practice their faith without being a part of a state church. The state church burned people at the stake for just wanting to put the word of God into a language they could read. They were dead for the most part. There was a remnant. And I would say that that remnant very accurately describes those who came to this country and those within Europe who stood against the state church and many times paid for it with their lives. Well, again, this is prophetic. It's sort of representative of church history. Rather than spirit-filled pastors leading the churches, they had kings and nobles, wealthy men who were now in control of the church, and it didn't go well. Surprise, surprise. Well, the majority of this church will be found wholly unprepared when Christ returns. And isn't it also interesting that when you consider the liberalism that has made its way through the mainline Protestant denominations, the the liberalism has really taken root in many of these churches, the wokeism, this idea of flying rainbow flags and adopting sin as a normal lifestyle, it's, it's flourished in these environments. Why? Well, where's the spirit? They check him at the door many times, not always. Oh, where's this pastor? Well, we really don't have pastors. Or we hire the pastor, and when we don't like his sermon, we fire the pastor. 
That's a recipe that ended in disaster for these churches. And it explains why most of these churches, again, most today, are dead, formal, empty places. They describe them as historical churches. And I think the best reason to describe them that way is God is history. And that's all he is. He's not reality. He's history. And I'm not picking on any one group. I'm saying this was a movement that ultimately ended up where we are in many churches today in our culture and throughout the world. And if you don't think so, do some Google searches. Just don't believe everything you read. Okay. The majority of this church will be found wholly unprepared. Like a person who is in their home asleep when the thief enters. They won't be looking for the second coming of Christ. In fact, most of these churches have determined that's not really going to happen anyway. They're going to be found sleeping instead of watching and waiting. But the remnant, the Sardis, the remnant will be prepared because they are walking in Christ's righteousness, dressed in white. They will remember and obey the promises given in God's word. So it's not all bad news, but it's not good news either. Because Jesus will not forsake the faithful who walk with him in the midst of so much lethargy. In each of these letters, you see the heart of God. You don't see the judgment of God, you see the heart of God reaching out to Christians. Now that speaks to the church of the first century, the church in Sardis. It speaks to a time period, specific time period in church history, known as the Reformed Church or the Protestant Reformation. But it also speaks, and I've shared some of this already, to churches throughout the ages, including today, that can be described as dead. And I'm not going to be like the doctor who shows up or the coroner that shows up and says the patient is dead. I'm not going to do that, but I'm going to say the word of God makes it abundantly clear. There's a point at which the church is dead. How do you know it's a dead church? It's a good question, right? How do you know a church is dead? Well, some of what we've already shared should answer that question, but let me, let me just go through a few things. The rejection of true spiritual leaders would be a good place to start. The rejection of true spiritual leaders has left these churches with no spirit-filled vision. Not surprising. No spirit-filled leaders, no spirit-filled vision. They also have a great and wonderful reputation that it's utterly false. It's all window dressing, as they say. It's, it's all just a fake facade, and the buildings are beautiful. But what's happening on the inside? What's happening in the heart? And their casual acknowledgement of God's word has left them powerless and dead because you can't casually acknowledge God's word. You need the spirit of God and spirit-filled messengers giving you the word of God if a church is going to be alive. Also, churches like this, the dead church, is satisfied with outward appearance. Satisfied with outward appearance. It's good enough if people think well of us. We don't really care about what's actually happening just as long as people think good things are happening. It's about image. It's not about reality. The majority are spiritually asleep while there remains a faithful remnant that longs for Jesus. So you might say, well, Pastor Tim, I have a brother who's involved in one of these churches and he loves Jesus and he would be one of the remnant. He would be among the Sardis, the remnant. But listen, this describes a heart as well. And as we close, I, I want to read something you're probably familiar with. And if you're, you're thinking about this now and applying this to your own heart or to the heart of someone who, who is not where they should be spiritually, I would bring your attention to what I call foolish virgin syndrome. It can be diagnosed very easily. Let's read. I'll read it for you. 
In Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 25, in verses 1 through 13, we read, At the time, Jesus says, At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like, that is, when Christ comes again, this is kind of an analogy that makes you understand what people's reaction will be. It will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. This was part of their culture. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in their jars along with their lamps. Incidentally, just a little thing, oil in the scripture is a type of the Holy Spirit. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. I don't know if you know this, but I'm sure you do. The bridegroom is Jesus Christ. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Notice they all fell asleep. But at midnight, the cry rang out, and here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And all of the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. The door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch. Because you don't know what hour, or you don't know the day or the hour. That's interesting, all that similar language, right? I mean, this was a city that was conquered. shouldn't have been conquered at all. This was a city that was conquered because they felt so secure they went to sleep and the thieves snuck in. That happened in their city over and over again. And the church had taken on sort of that characteristic that they would go to sleep because they felt secure. And it's a wonderful thing to feel secure in God and in Christ. And that's a beautiful thing that came out of the Protestant Reformation. The Christians were no longer looking over their shoulder and wondering whether they were saved because they knew God wouldn't blot them out of that book. And that's a good thing. But if you're secure in Christ and your security leads you to lethargy such that you go to sleep and become dead, it's a horrible thing. And that's the sad truth of what happened during the years of the Protestant Reformation. So we have a letter that is both practical and it speaks to us personally. It's powerful and prophetic as well because it speaks to a time in church history, but it speaks to churches today that may not even be a part of the Protestant movement. Any church can fit this category. More importantly, any heart can be described as dead. I'm going to ask Pastor Russ to come up to close the service. And as we do, I want you to think about, okay, let's forget about the city of Sardis and the mountain slope and the river and how they went to sleep. Let's forget about the time in church history. That's interesting. But what's of paramount importance is your heart. And God knows your heart. You don't even know your heart, but God knows your heart. Let me ask you a question. Let's ask ourselves this question. Are we spiritually dead? Dying? Alive? Look into your own heart. Where do you think you are? What what do you think God would show you about your spirituality? About your heart for God? Your openness and willingness to be filled with his spirit and to study his word in a way that you remember, obey, that's a big thing right there, and repent, Wait a minute, if you're not obeying God's word, you may be flatlining. Did you hear what I said? If you are not obeying God's word, word that you know. Now, if you don't know something's wrong, you can't be held accountable. But if you know it's wrong and you're doing it anyway, you're probably flatlining. So we've got to get those paddles out today. And why did they always say this? Clear! Boom! 
That's what today's message is. It's a defibrillator. For all of us to recognize we need to become alive in Christ. And the only way that happens is if we put ourselves in a place where the Spirit of God can reach us through his word. But then you have to take that, apply it to your heart, obey it that you might live. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, for this great encouragement. We are so grateful that you don't just write us off. We want to be among that remnant, even within a dead culture, a culture that has largely rejected you. And even if we attend a church that came out of this movement, it doesn't mean we have to be as it's described here. But we ask today, even if we're members of this church or another church, Regardless of the church we attend, may our hearts be alive, filled with your spirit. May we long to receive messages spoken truthfully from your word. And may you help us to remember the things we have received, your word, to obey it and change. That we might live for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.